Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Navarro. Last fall, I had the chance to sit down with acclaimed poetry critic Marjorie Perloff. She was visiting Washington University to accept the Center for the Humanities International Humanities Medal at the time. Perloff taught for many years at Stanford and at the University of Southern California, and she's very well known for her books and essays on contemporary, modern, and avant-garde poetry. At least in part, Perloff credits her fascination with poetry to her family background. She spent her early childhood in Vienna. At that time, her name was not Marjorie Perloff. It was Gabrielle Mintz. And I'm so sorry I ever changed that name because Gabrielle is such a lovely name, much nicer than Marjorie, but that just shows that when I was about 13, which is when I became an American citizen, I wanted very much to be, um, you know, like everybody else you do at that age. It was seven years earlier, in 1938, when Gabrielle and her family had left Vienna. Her family was Jewish, and facing the Nazi takeover of Austria, they were forced to flee their home. The girl who would later become Marjorie Perloff was only six years old at the time, but she still remembers that night. We left the day that Hitler invaded Vienna, the day of the Anschluss, that night. But I can remember now going down the stairs, you were only allowed to take four suitcases with you. So we just left the whole apartment intact, and I remember being on the... um, first floor, which would be what we call the second floor. And when we got that far, walking down the stairs, we didn't take the elevator, and we were leaving to go to the train station, the concierge suddenly came out of her apartment. And she just came out of her apartment and gave us this sort of withering look. And I can remember that, and we just went on down. So that's strong in my mind, yeah. That sort of get out look, yeah. Despite being so young when her family had to escape Austria, Perloff remembers the importance of art and culture for her family in Vienna. There, her parents had been part of a world in which the arts were essential parts of everyday life. You know, everybody was just very culture-hungry, and then everything was very close by. You could walk to the opera house, you could walk to the book theater, go to the theater, and that's just what people did, and they really cared about the arts. Uh, much more than I think most people do here. It was it was a big thing to care about the arts, so everybody missed that when they left. Perloff told me that if she had to choose between American democracy and that Viennese life, she would choose American democracy. For one, because she understands that much of the high culture in Austria at that time was built upon enormous poverty and social inequality. But still, she believes that her outlook and career has at least in part been shaped by that history. For one, she doesn't mind making value judgments about literature and art. I mean, I think if there's no value, if you can't say this is better than that, not that people will totally agree, that's fun, that there is disagreement. Although there won't be any disagreement that, I don't know, Proust is great probably, or certain writers are great. But if there are no value judgments, what's really the point? Along these lines, in the introduction to a recently published book of interviews and essays, Perloff looked back to A Few Don'ts, a famous piece written by Ezra Pound in 1913. In it, Pound offered poets a list of what not to do when writing poetry. Despite having mixed feelings about Pound himself, Perloff believes his list is still the best roadmap we have for understanding how poetry works. 
I'm sure Ezra Pound wasn't somebody you'd want to have dinner with particularly. He wasn't a very nice person, pretty bad, you know, politics. He was just very racist and all that. But he was good at framing those views, those little aphorisms. Still, even the best lists occasionally need updating. In the introduction to Poetics in a New Key, Perloff adds five additional don'ts for poets. So here they are, someone abbreviated, five things that Marjorie Perloff believes you should not do when writing poetry. Number one, don't assume that free verse, now the default mode of poetry, is equivalent to the mere practice of lineation, or breaking text into lines. So I think most of what's written today that passes for poetry, it calls itself poetry, but why is it poetry? I've never gotten anybody to really give me an answer. Well, they say, well, it's lineated. Well, all right, you can lineate anything. I mean, I can take this book right now and just lineate it, can I? So then is it poetry? And that seems like a minimum definition, or not, not good enough. And, and I think we're due for some kind of revival of sound structure. For examples of poems that have interesting sound structure, Perloff suggests you turn to poets like Edgar Allan Poe, T.S. Eliot, or W.B. Yeats. There's a wonderful poem by Yeats that goes, it's just a very short poem, and I think I know it by heart, called A Deep Sworn Vow that goes, Others, because you did not keep that deep sworn vow, have been friends of mine. But always when I clamber to the heights of sleep, or when I grow excited with wine, suddenly I see your face. And that last line, it just stands out because it doesn't rhyme, and it's shorter, and it's just so wonderful of that process, you know. Onward to number two. Don't take yourself so seriously. So when I say don't take yourself so seriously, it's that we're all implicated, whatever is going on. We're not so innocent and, and we're not so perfect. So the kind of poetry that is always telling everybody what to think or putting other people down is, I mean, what about you? You know, so I think in general, it's a good idea to be able to laugh at yourself. Number three, which relates to number two, don't underestimate the importance of a sense of humor, of irony. Remember that satire, parody, mock epic, and burlesque are hardly inferior forms of poetry. I do think irony is important and that things aren't just said straightforwardly with this sort of high seriousness, like just inventing the wheel kind of, you know, in a way. Number four, don't play the victim card, now the staple of much of what passes for poetry. You have endless poems about how I was victimized, and I was a poor, I was Asian-American, I was this, I was that, and all about being victimized. And it, it dates very quickly, and it doesn't go very far. Because, you know, first of all, victims, and I was a victim myself, let's say a victim of the Holocaust, but victims aren't all wonderful people either. That's the fallacy. And that really shows in poetry, especially, when somebody keeps playing that victim of what was done to me. Well, what did you do? And, last but not least, number five. Don't forget that, whether consciously or unconsciously, all poems are written with an eye and ear to earlier poetry, and that to write poetry at all, one must first read a lot of it. Obviously, you know, it's all poetry is imbricated with things that do come from earlier things and things you know. And one of the hardest things, I've heard poets actually say this when they teach poetry, one of the hardest things is to teach people who are like a blank slate. They've never read any poetry, so they have nothing to fall back on or use in a certain way or even parody or satirize because they've never read earlier poetry. So I do think it's very important to know it, but on the other hand, I don't think you can write 
like Wordsworth today either, or, you know, or say that's how people should be writing, because it just doesn't work that way. So after all these don'ts, what should poets do? In addition to reading earlier poetry, Perloff suggests reading foreign poetry, that learning other languages can help you better understand not only that language, but your own. Also, make every word count. I would say do, you know, watch every word, every word you put down. As Yeats said, our words must be inevitable. So every word in poetry should count, and every rhythm should count, and watch very carefully and revise and get it, you really get it right. What's so amazing about poetry, if something happens in one place, it'll happen a little later in a slightly variant form, so that everything relates. It's just that sense of form, a powerful sense of form of everything going together. So try to write so that that will happen, I guess. Try to be one of those on whom nothing is lost, as Henry James said. Pay attention. Many thanks to Marjorie Perloff for joining Hold That Thought and for Washington University's Center for the Humanities for making this interview possible. For many more ideas to explore, please visit holdthatthought.wustl.edu.